Welcome to Life in the Front Office. Today, I'm your host, Jake Hirschman, and I've got John McDonough, President and CEO of the Chicago Blackhawks, along with our longtime friend and co-host, Pat Gallagher, uh, here to talk a little bit about John's career and what he's accomplished in the sports industry and maybe what our listeners can learn a little bit from his uh, experiences throughout his time um, and, and, you know, all the shiny trophies he's acquired over the years. So, John, I'm going to have Pat introduce you and we'll, we'll kick it off from there. Well, I'll tell you, uh, John, welcome to the podcast. Um, you know, before there was a lot of shiny trophies, there was a lot of years without any trophies, right? So, so yeah, there were, there, there were decades without trophies. <laughs> decades. And, and a lot of people in our business, you know, were never fortunate enough to get a trophy and, uh, um, and I and you were I, I really want to start off with because um, you're a, you're a Chicago guy. Um, I, you know, I also I also was born in Chicago. I know that moved, moved to California when I was a kid. But you were always a Chicago guy. And it wasn't your first I mean, wasn't your first job in this business in Chicago? Weren't you in soccer? My first job out of school, Pat, was with the Chicago Sting in the North American Soccer League. And that was from uh, 1980 to 83. We, we won the uh, soccer bowl in 1981 against the New York Cosmos in Toronto. And shortly thereafter, three years later in 1983, I joined uh, the Cubs and had the good fortune to cross paths with you. It was great, great time. And, you know, the Cubs, you know, uh, you know, I, being with the Giants who played in the worst ballpark um, in baseball, um, but we sort of had this attitude that we, you know, it, the, the ballpark was sort of like our 11th player. And, you know, in Chicago with the Cubs, you had, I mean, the, the magic of Wrigley Field. Um, you know, we, the rest of us in the game would always look at, at Wrigley Field and say, you had something there that, uh, that really nobody else had. You know, maybe the Red Sox had it, but I don't think there was anything like the Cubs. Tell me about, uh, about being, in the, being in the, with the Cubs and, and, you know, you have to have a sense of humor to be in this business. You certainly had to have a sense of humor as you were working through this. But tell me about some of your Cub, uh, your cub years. Well, when you, first of all, Pat, when you talk about Wrigley Field, there, there is a unique mystique. There's an aura about that ballpark. I think what happened was when for the first time in 39 years when the Cubs wound up uh, winning the division, ultimately did not get to the World Series. We fell one game short, but it kind of coincided with the gentrification of the neighborhood. Harry Carey was on the scene. Ryan Sandberg was the most valuable player. And there was a cultural explosion that took place at that time. And everything in what had probably uh, that had been uh, Wrigleyville, there really wasn't a Wrigleyville prior to that. Um, you just saw this rebirth of this franchise that all of a sudden came on the scene and Instead of just being cast as the lovable losers, there was something good that could happen to this franchise. But, you know, when you play during the day, Pat, so you do something that no one else is doing and you're on a superstation. So your games go into 80 million homes every mm-hmm. single day. It is a great advantage. It's difficult, probably, uh, if you're looking at it from an attendance standpoint, there were some lean years prior to 84 but after 84, consistently, the Cubs were in the 2 million, 3 million range every year. And it was, you know, I mean, that was a, a, a remarkable achievement considering, considering the, the, the team, the Cubs during those years, 
Um, you know, you don't like to talk about the lovable losers, but the Cubs, you know, and I always thought it was, you know, something that's something to do with playing during the day was great for a baseball fan. Might not have been so good for a, you know, a major league baseball player. Is there anything to that? That's absolutely right. And I think that the players, uh, you know, if, if, if they had, if it was, if it was up to them, they would have played your normal 35 or 40 night games, uh, at home. That wasn't necessarily the case. I think when we first graduated in night baseball, I think it was, it was 16 night games per season, but yeah, they would have, I think they would have, they would have uh, chosen that route. They point to 1969, which was, uh, you know, important year in the history of the Cubs. They fell short. They had a big lead in uh, August. Ultimately, they fell to the New York Mets, but they looked at that and they said, well, it appeared as if the team had been burned out because of so many night games. But I do think day baseball in the big picture did serve the Cubs very well just because of the national stage that they were on every single day. We're on every day. And, you know, it's 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 an amazing thing because you could you could sit in a bar across the street from Wrigley Field while the game was going on and watch the game on television. And you could there was a it it really was a cultural phenomenon. And, John, I don't know if you ever knew this, but, uh, you know, I was so envious of this working for the Giants trying to figure it out that in 1985, um, I managed to convince our owner, Bob Lurie, who was a good guy to said, why don't we try, we can't draw at night, why don't we try playing more day games? So we actually scheduled 61 day games in 1985. Um, a, lot, a lot of the other teams in the league weren't all that happy about it because, because of what it did to their broadcast stuff. And I just say, hey, look, we're dying out there. We did it for one year. Our theme was real grass, real sunshine, real baseball. And after the end of April, one of the writers said, well, two out of three of that. <laughs> <And>, uh, <laughs> So, so it was an experiment that didn't last, but it was a, uh, you know, the Cubs, and I, I want to talk a little bit about the Cubs, but then I want to talk about your, you know, about uh, the question I've been dying to ask you is, you know, why, why you left the Cubs. But you started something with the Cubs that sort of also helped their, you know, their, their culture, and it was this thing called the Cubs Convention. Tell me how that started. Sure. The genesis of that, Pat, was, you know, quite simply when I interviewed for the Cubs position in 1983, I interviewed with Dallas Green and and Jim Fanks. And, you know, in the course of the interview, you know, they had asked what if, if you were to join our marketing department, what would you do? What would you do different? And I was prepared for that answer because I really never understood not being in baseball. You know, you pitchers and catchers report in the middle of February. And if you don't make the playoffs, the season ends around October the 1st. And then you just surrender for four or five months to other sports. And in any conventional business, you're marketing that sport 12 months a year. So I had presented to both of them the idea of the Cubs convention that would bridge the end of one season to the beginning and another. Now, keep in mind, this is pre sports talk radio so there had never been any access to players in person to management in person where it would be your past your present your management your broadcasters your alumni all under one roof at the same time and it would humanize all of them and bring both groups together did they think it was a good idea from the it start? was you know it was a bit of a challenge i think that 
the turning point, I had, had asked Harry Carey if he would be the honorary chairman. And he really didn't even know what he was saying yes to. We had a very good relationship, but we were able to convince the players to do this. And it was almost like uh, a reunion. It was almost like a college or a high school reunion that you would have every year. And tremendous fellowship grew out of this. And you did not compensate the players, but the wealth of relationships and seeing everybody every every year, I think they really enjoyed it and ultimately had a huge impact uh, on the visibility of our franchise, our attendance, the camaraderie, access to players, access to staff, and the ability to see heroes that were part of your past. Um, you'd see them in the dead of winter uh, for three days, and it was uh, – you know, it was successful. The first year we probably had about maybe 3,500 people. Then it grew to about 5,000. And then we knew we had a hit on our hands in the middle of a blizzard. They were scalping convention tickets on Michigan Avenue when we were, when we were at the Hyatt. And, you know, you'd have 12, 15,000 people that would come to this event. And I think it's been sold out every year since. Are they still doing yep, it? They're still doing it. I think they're they're on about their 32nd or 33rd one, which uh, do the math, Pat. It's uh, it was a long time, <laughs> a long time ago. So, John, if you just could have gotten a commission on all those hotel rooms and uh, stuff. I mean, that was the one the one thing, one part of the plan that uh, that you didn't think. Yeah, through. the intellectual I... po- property part felt a little <laughs> bit short. I've been asked that question many times, but uh <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm very, I'm very flattered that so many other teams have, have adopted it. And it's been a, it's been great for our industry. Uh, It was fantastic. So, so, you know, you spent over 20, I think what spent 24 years with the Cubs. And uh, so tell me, tell me the thought process and how this, how this thing with the Black Blackhawks started, because, you know, paying attention to, 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 to hockey in Chicago, for a number of years, I mean, it was, I mean, that was not a place that you probably would want to go. But on the other hand, if you figured, well, there's lots of upside, but, but how did that happen? Well, first, Pat, I, I cherished every moment of my 24 plus years for the Chicago Cubs. You know, I, I was, a, you know, in high school and college, uh, I was a, I was a bad student. Uh, I was a bad athlete. That's not a good formula for any type of success. And, you know, you find yourself in an enviable situation working for uh, the Chicago Cubs in your own hometown for 24 years and, you know, worked up the ranks and things had gone extremely well. But uh, I had I had received a phone call in uh, October of 2007. You know, at the time I was I was president of the Cubs and uh, we had just we had just won the division. And I received a phone call from an emissary from uh, the owner of the Blackhawks, Rocky Wirtz, whose father had just passed away. And there was going to be a changing of the guard and ownership uh, standpoint in the family. And he asked me to get together. And I, and I thought he wanted to get together to talk about the landscape of Chicago sports owners. And to make a long story short, we had uh, we had a. Uh, in a meeting, which was really an epiphany, you know, I, I met somebody that was inspiring, relentless, funny, engaging, personable, great business skills. And within about an hour, he said, I'd like you to run the Blackhawks and I have no plan B. And, you know, a, 
I, re- I remember at the time, you know, we wound up being there four or five hours. And, uh, you know, I said, in order for this to go forward, you're, you're going to have to call the Cubs and grant permission. I will say the Cubs granted permission awfully quickly. <laughs> so, <laughs> faster than I thought they would. Well, but, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, you know we, we, could, we could do a whole show about what I think is the whole tampering thing in baseball, which I think in, in, in uh, I just think it's ridiculous in, in, in other sports. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> so, um, so the Cubs granted permission and, and Rocky and I got, got together and it was, it was really challenging. Cause Pat, you, you understand that, you know, we, we both aside from sports, we have a lot of friends. We've got brothers that, you know, that we've either gone to college with or high school with. So I called about four or five of my best friends, my lifelong buddies who give it to me straight. Right. And I would call them and I would say, look, here's where I'm at. I'm contemplating leaving the Cubs for the job as president of the Chicago Blackhawks. Now, I don't know if you've ever been on the other end of the phone where there's four or five seconds of deafening (laughs) silence and it was profanity laced, but the end of every one of my questions was their, their answer was, are you out of your mind? Yes. with a lot of profanity attached to it. <laughs> and because the Blackhawks had been off the map, they had been off the radar for quite a long time. But every time one of them said I would not do it, it inspired me to try to play a micro-fractional role into something that, that they said would never come back again. So it's been incredibly rewarding. It's been the best decision I've ever made in my life for myself, for my family, for my friends, and having the great opportunity to have met and worked for Rocky Words. Well, it's in the story and what, what, what you all and you leading and what you've done with that franchise to, you know, to not only bring it back, but make it into a model and, you know, the sellout streak, the, the Stanley Cups. I mean, you, you, it's, it's, if, you, if you could have dreamt what the result would have been, and, uh, you know, I know you're good, John, but I'm not sure that you could have dreamt what actually happened. It, 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 would, have been, uh, it would have been challenging, but we take these jobs, Pat, day, day by day, and you know that there are so many times when we're, we, we, we have to make these quiet decisions, and we've got to, we've got to make some unpopular decisions on popular people, and... Uh, this was about seismic change, profound change. And uh, this wasn't going to be for the faint of heart. It wasn't going to be for the weak need to come in here and assess the landscape. This was, we had to make a lot of changes. We had to make them quickly. We had to hire the right people and develop a culture uh, here with the Blackhawks that, you know, called for consistent excellence over decades and decades. So, you know, it was it was a challenge. We've we've been successful. We're, we we really don't have a rearview mirror here. We don't talk about uh, the three Stanley Cups. We don't reflect on them. We kind of we look exactly where we are now and where we're going. You know, if you had to describe, because you, you you are with two franchises now that have established uh, a winning culture. If somebody asked you what the difference was 
from 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 that standpoint of working in Major League Baseball for the Cubs and working for the Blackhawks, how would you describe it? Is there a difference, or is it more similarities? You know, Pat, I think that no, there's there's a pretty big difference. I think the Cubs in Chicago are a way of life. They are woven into deeply into the heart and soul of the city of Chicago because it's very, very generational. There's three or four or five generations. And I remember my father, my father who, who passed away in 2011 at the age of 99, he saw Babe Ruth play and he would wow. give me these great memories of great players that played at Wrigley field. And so I think, you know, because it's baseball and because of the generational aspect, there's, there's, there's quite a difference. And because of the 162 games, which are primarily three and a half to four hour commercials for your product, baseball becomes a family member after a period of time. And I think coming over here, um, there was a bit of a dark period. There had been some very, uh, prominent members, prominent players that had left under, curious circumstances uh bobby hull and uh, uh tony esposito and uh chris chelios and jeremy roenick and a number of other players and i think that there was a bit of a sour taste in their mouth and and that that the franchise had been off the map but it there was always this interest this huge interest in the blackhawks but yet there was a feeling of it's a little sad what's going on there. Like, why can't that come back? So I think they were just looking for a reason. And when Rocky Wirtz came here in 2007 and he took over, I think people sensed a different vibration that things were going to change and things were going to change swiftly. But there are a lot of similarities, yet there are a lot of a lot of differences, Pat. You know, I, I, I think that I always, you know, people ask me, what's the best sports town in America? And, uh, you know, I'm a little biased because I uh, because I was born in Chicago. But I think Chicago is is the best sports town, mostly because of the, the passion people have for what they do, even when their team's not doing well. It's it's hey, it's a it's it really is a family. You said it. And uh, do you do you do you believe that? You know, I, I believe that I think Chicago is the best sports city in the country, but I'm sure that. <clears throat> whatever city that you happen to live in or whoever runs a franchise in that respective city probably feels the same way about their own city. I think, you know, we're very fortunate, you know, because of the bears and the bulls and the Blackhawks and the Cubs and the white Sox, there's so many opportunities and uh, sports plays such a prominent role in the city. And, you know, we're fortunate that virtually you know, every single day of the year, it's on the menu to follow. And it's, uh, it's, it's very entertaining, very enlightening. And the fans are very engaged. So let's, let's shift gears a little bit, um, John, and, and let's talk about people. Um, because, uh, you know, we're all in the, we're in the fun business where we're, you know, we have to develop a culture, have to develop a, uh, you know, sort of a way of doing business. But when you're, you know, in developing a culture, give me some of the some of the things that you think about, some of the, some of the things that you look for in people uh, who you bring into this business. 
Well, we're in the people business, Pat. You can argue that we're more in the people business than we are in the sports business. And hiring to me is the most underrated and most important executive skill. And looking for people who are creative, who are humble, who are hungry, who are selfless. When I sit down and by the time I meet someone, they've been vetted pretty well. And if I hear somebody talk about what their personal aspirations are, or where they see themselves in three or five years, they're probably not going to be a good fit for me. I look for people that want to come in and complement and enhance what we have. And then it's our job as management people to, again, recognize and reward achievement. What I ask of our staff here, we don't have a lot of rules. What I ask of the people that work here is continuity collaboration, primarily be great at your job and pull for others to succeed. That is critical. And we take a lot of time in the hiring business. We made a decision when I came over here that we were going to develop a young, enthusiastic, dynamic group of people that possibly, to take a page out of the Pat Gallagher playbook, to do things that had never, have never been done before. And I wanted to bring in these hungry young people and I believe in the beauty of youth and I believe in giving people an opportunity and maybe Pat hiring people that have something to prove that they want to come into an organization and they never were necessarily designated as a superstar, but there's a lot of uh, collaboration. We've hired a lot of bright people. We have a very good system. We have a very good process. And I think that's been a good formula for our success. Well, you've certainly done that right. And, and, you know, some of the people that you've hired, uh, you know, have, have, you know, have really made that, have not only made the culture, but they've gone on to do other things. So, John, when you're coming up in the business, tell me the people that you sort of look to uh, as, well, not necessarily mentors, but people that you said, you know what, that's somebody that I want to stay, I want to stay close to. I want to stay in touch. Well, Pat, not to embarrass you, you would be certainly one of them. And I had a chance to observe you, although, uh, you know, we didn't spend a lot of time together. I had a front row seat to see you and to see Andy Dolich and to see a number of these other people and Jeff Odenwald and some other people who were very, very engaging yet successful, and they really enjoyed their jobs, and they were highly respected, very motivated, and they were in love with their industry. They really, really enjoyed that. But, you know, people that I had a chance to work with on a day-in, day-out basis with the Cubs, uh, Dallas Green had a had a very big impact on me. Um Don Granesco, who was president of the Cubs for a number of years, uh, we had a number of coaches that were there that 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 I had great relationships with, and general managers that are too numerous to count. But you know, you you kind of you, you observe and you see people's style and how things work, and you know, I, I I try as hard as I possibly can to engage with everybody to respect with everybody. I think the era of the fire and brimstone is long gone. You know, these people want to feel, they want to feel included. They want, people want things explained to them. They want to know where their place is in the organization. And more importantly, Pat, they want to know where they stand. 
And I think that's very, very important. But, you know, I had the good I had the good fortune to observe a lot of good people in baseball. And there's somebody right now that I would look at who I, I think someday potentially could be commissioner of baseball, who is a very, very close friend of mine. And I get a chance to see him a lot. And that's Sam Kennedy of the Boston Red Sox. He was in he was in baseball when I was there. He was just kind of getting going and, and we've stayed in touch and. You know, I see what he's done in Boston and what he's achieved, and I think he's going to be a, a, a he is a great leader right oh, now, yeah. and the sky's the limit for him. I totally agree, and I, you know, the, the one of the qualities that I always, I don't know, sort of endeared me about people is that you know I, I'm interested in all the you know all the risk taking and all that, but I think there's a certain degree of humility that you have to have in this business. Um, you know, sports has a way of slapping you around, too, when um, when things don't go well. But um, and I also think that you have to have a certain amount of luck. I, I think you make your luck. But uh, any feelings about humility or luck in the business? We talk about it all the time, Pat, that, that you've got to lead with humility, that we're fortunate to have these careers in professional sports. And I impart to the people here all of the time. Be interesting and be interested. Be interesting by being curious and asking people about others because there's going to come a point where people are going to stop me at a restaurant or there I was out to dinner last night with my son and people came up to me and they were asking me about the Cubs years and they were asking me about the Blackhawks. And I really think it's important to kind of pivot that conversation and maybe the five most important words that I've learned in my career in dealing with people is please tell me about you and don't become yeah. self-immersed. You know, people can Google us and find out what they want. But I think when you turn that conversation around and you realize that that person's equally as important to this conversation and it is about humility and it is about other people. And when I say be interesting, it's being well-read being informed, not just about sports, but a number of other topics and being able to hold your own and then some in any conversation. Public speaking is obviously very, very, very important, but be interesting, be interested, be engaged, and the other person really matters. Because let's face it, people get caught up in this and you want to have these healthy dialogues. Remembering people's names is absolutely critical and just don't go, just don't get self-absorbed because Mr. Humbler is right around the corner for all of us. Just when you <laughs> think you have something figured out or you have an answer or the team is on a roll. We were just in Boston the other night. We had won seven in a row. We were, we were on a roll. We went into, uh, we went into Boston and we were, we were trounced. And, uh, you know, it just it's a wake up call once in a while. And you get those on and off the field, on and off the ice every day. But I think it's great to have a humble approach personally and professionally. And, and you know, John, the other thing that I think a good thing that's happening in our business is, you know, when you and I started in this business, I would say diversity would not be one of the ways that you would that you would describe people who are in this business. But. You know, when you when you look at the, at the when I say the kids, the young people coming into the business, particularly a lot more women coming into the business. Tell me, you know, wh what do you think? What do you think that we can continue to do to promote more 
uh, you know, people of all different colors and different backgrounds to get into our business. How do we? There's got to be inclusion everywhere, everywhere. Um, you know, it's important. You know, in our business, we're seeing that transformation right before our eyes, and it's long, long overdue. Uh, I think all of the professional sports are embracing it. Uh, I think you're seeing now uh, opportunities, not only, um, not only. Uh, in front offices, but now in the broadcasting world. And, you know, I'm, I'm proud to say we've been a part of that as well. And I think the opportunities are endless. Wow. So, um, hey, Jake, can you Ab- talk down absolutely. there? You, uh, you still Ab- with us? You know, Pat, Pat, I didn't want to ruin your mojo. Well, I'm sort of horning in here, but you know what, it's, you know, if we were sitting here with a couple of beers, you know, this conversation would, who knows which way it would go. But, but John's right. We, you know, we're, we're lucky to be in this business and we're lucky to a lot of the characters we got a chance to know. One, one, I tell you, John, one of the people that I got a chance to meet when uh, early on was I got a chance to meet and not only meet him, but I got a chance to have a few cocktails with him was Bill Vett. Yeah. Um, and I <laughs> And I, you know, I always admired him, but, but just to be able to talk to him and listen to him. And, and mostly he asked me about, um, about what I was doing. I was, he was doing all this while he was sitting there putting out cigarette butts on his, on his wooden peg leg. We were <laughs> sitting at, at some, at some, at some at one of the saloons, I think it was in New York at one of the, um, at one of the, the world series meetings, but you know, there are some incredible characters in this game. And um, I mean, you can, you got to know one. I got. To, I've got to know a bunch of them. But Harry Carey. I mean, Harry Carey um, was a uh, not only an icon, but he. There was something about Harry that he, he didn't necessarily have to get everything right, which he didn't a lot towards the, particularly towards the end. But what, what was it about Harry that that? Why did people love him so much? They loved him, Pat, because Harry Carey was Mardi Gras and New Year's Eve rolled into one. And every day was a celebration. And it, as you said, late in his career, some of the names were were mispronounced and it even increased his popularity. And I think at times he would mispronounce them on purpose. But he was <laughs> one of these larger than life, live it up, the meters running, have fun at this. And very few people get a chance to live by their own rules. And he had a huge impact on my career. He was so good to me. Uh, we had a very close relationship and I miss him a great deal, but he was, he was so unique. It was about squeezing as much out of life every single day. And he probably for players and for fans, you either loved him or you hated him, but the vast majority yeah. of people loved him. And you talk about charisma and you talk about uh, enjoying the experience. You know, he made the seventh inning stretch at Wrigley Field. No, no matter what the score was, you'd have to stick around for that. You didn't know what he was going to say. It was very unpredictable. He could potentially be critical of the players, the umpires. No, you have no idea what, what he was going to say. But it was, you know, it was almost like the Pope at the Vatican. I mean, he would sing. There's 40,000 people there. He was not a great singer, nor have many of the hundreds, if not thousands, of singers that have followed him. But 
the the beauty of it he was perfectly imperfect and one of the cool things that you did you know when harry would get up there and sing and sing take me out to the ball game which you i guess you can't do that in hockey but you can do it in baseball but you had a parade of people that became part of the tradition i gotta ask you you know you have probably had some good ones who, who was the worst take me out to the ball game well i don't know if he was the worst it was the it was uh the the two that were the most memorable were Ozzy Osbourne and Mike Ditka. Uh, <laughs> what what Ozzy sang didn't remotely uh, relate to "Take Me Out to the Ball Game," but people were so excited that that he was there. And Mike Ditka was late, so he got up to the booth, and the inning was about to start, and I think he sang it. Uh, within about 15 or 20 seconds. And it's an iconic clip here in Chicago. But we were fortunate. We've had, they've had many, many, many great names that have come through there. They've had many, many not so great names. But it's about, you know, you talk about diversity and you talk about people from different walks of life, whether they be athletes or musicians or actors or whomever might be in Chicago at the time. It's almost become a rite of passage that if you are in Chicago between April and now November, you're invited to sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game. There's a great sense of pride in being invited. John, as, oh John, as, as, as we kind of, you know, we you, obviously your time's valuable. And as we look to wrap up the episode, I've got a couple questions for you in, in the sense of, you know, for our listeners, as they go throughout their career, you know, they've got goals they've got to try and hit. Maybe they go from place to place. How have you defined success in your career along the way? And has that, that definition for, your, for yourself ever changed? Well, I think success for me, Jake, would be getting up every day, being inspired, being enthused, being able to make an impact and being able to learn. Uh, we have a chance to do this for a living. And there are a lot of people that, although they, they, they have fruitful careers, they might look back and they say, you know, I, I did well for myself, but I wish I would have done that. I've never had one moment in my life that I've ever regretted getting into professional sports. This is the ultimate dream come true. So that's really how I would measure success more than winning the Stanley Cups or attendance records at Wrigley Field and sellouts here at the United Center and the great things that we have still, because I I believe the greatest moment in my career hasn't happened yet. And I'm 65 years old. Um, I'm I'm much, much younger than Pat, as you you know, Jake. Uh, I know you're aware of that. Absolutely. Pat said that we started at about the same time. Honesty compels me to tell you that's not completely accurate. It would be about the same time, but there might have been a few years difference on either side. But that's how I would define success. Well, and and I think so. Go ahead, Pat. I think so too. Go ahead. No, you you go ahead. This well, is, I've talked too much. And and as you know, as you look at the people you surround yourself with, right? You talked about we're in the people business, and you know you're at the top of the organization, but looking at what you can do on a day-to-day basis and how others complement you around, around the organization. What are some of the things that you've strived to, 
um, fill with, with people around you, knowing that, you know, you can't do everything by yourself. Jake, I would say people that are never satisfied, people that are always hungry to get better, that despite the level of success that we're looking forward, Pat had mentioned a really important word, humility, you know, humility and kindness and being good to other people. And we have to be this ubiquitous, omnipresent, everything to everybody. Pat, you would agree with this. We have to be on every minute of the day, right? Whether you go to mass, whether you're going to a mall, whether you're going to a restaurant, wherever you go, we have to be on every single minute of the day. And I think we feed off of that. There are certainly days where you just get peopled out. Like you go home and you need about an hour or two of complete silence and just read or watch TV or whatever it might be. But I think that, you know, we're so fortunate to have these jobs in surrounding myself with achievers that, that always are looking to exceed expectations that are never satisfied and want to be part of something again that had never been done before. I want this to be perceived as the gold standard franchise in the NHL and professional sports. And I want to see our, our winning continue. Well, and, and as you compared yourself to others around the country, was there anyone that when you took the realm, uh, you know, at, at the Blackhawks, were you like, we want to get to that point, we want to be like them? Or was it creating your own culture that you knew uh, had worked maybe from the Cubs? It, it was creating our own culture, that this was a blank slate, start from scratch. If there was possibly a term, uh, Pat is a wordsmith, so maybe he'd be able to tell me if there is a word that's starting before <laughs> scratch, that's what we had to do here. I, 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 would, say, I would say fear. <laughs> fear. Fear, fear, fear. Fear is a good motivator, and I don't mean don't doing things out of fear, but I think fearing that you just didn't do enough, that you just – you know, maybe you didn't make enough calls that day. Maybe you didn't spend enough time with somebody. May, I, I, you know what? I, 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 was, I always had a fear that I just maybe, maybe I just didn't do enough. And I, at least I always felt that way. I think that's fair. But I think also, Pat, our, our, uh, as we evolve and we transition into different jobs, you know, the job now for me has changed. You've got to know when to put your foot on the gas when to take your foot off the gas, when to engage, when to listen. Um, and that's been an interesting change because as two guys that were marketers and selling all of the time, you know, you are on and you're in the middle of that scrum all of the time, correct? I mean, you're in the middle of that scrum. Yeah. And then when you find yourself in a different position, they're not inviting you to the same meetings you used to be invited to. And they don't ask your opinion like they used to ask your opinion. <laughs> so it's just a little bit different. And it's been an interesting transition for me, you know, all, albeit a very enjoyable one. Well, and, and, and John, well, it, it's, you, it, mentioned, you mentioned, you know, the you're on all the time, right? So kind of the last thing to wrap up and, and then we'll let Pat kind of finish it off. But you know, work-life balance, where where is that kind of um, grown to, to, you know, come to throughout your career? And has it changed and evolved uh as you've, as you've moved up the ladder? Well, it's, yeah, I, I think work-life balance is, you know, is very important. I, I, I think uh, 
we're so fortunate again to have these jobs and I'm blessed to have a great family. I've got three wonderful kids and two grandchildren and uh, that is with me all of the time, making sure that they're in a good place and I check in with them on a daily basis. God forbid I talk to them on the phone. I have to make sure I text them and, and, uh, but <laughs> we know that's, we know that's changed, but yeah, you know, I, I was just speaking to our development people before I, I got on, on the podcast with you guys. And we were just saying that our families are important. It's the most important thing, but you know, you're thinking about our profession. It's with you 24 hours a day, because as Pat said, it's that fear or it's just how many times Pat, have you been at a family event or you've been doing something or an idea you shouldn't even be thinking about the giants <laughs> but something yeah. strikes you that you've either got to write it down or you've got to leave yourself a message or whatever it might be it's with you all of the time so i think the work life balance is very very important you know i hope for almost everybody it's a good 50-50 um but uh, but these jobs are with you all the time Hey, I, John, l- let me just thank you again for coming on the podcast. You know, there's something about uh, two Irish guys, you know, <laughs> sitting from Chicago who, uh, who, you know, who, who don't take themselves too seriously, but I think they take the, take what they do very seriously. And that's really what it's been all about. And, uh, John, I'm proud of you for your success. Um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to pay attention this year, you know, this year, you, you know, it's, you got to come a ways to have a, a successful season, but you can do that. I mean, you can actually do that. And um, I'll just watch you in the next few years as you, you know, you may decide to do this forever. Nobody can do it forever. But um, uh, again, I just appreciate the fact that you took the time to do this. And um, listening to John, I think that anybody who's listening to this can tell uh, why the Blackhawks are successful and certainly why the Cubs are successful and why this is such a fun business. So, John, take it easy. Thanks so much. Best of luck the rest of the way. Pat, great to rekindle with you, and I have all the respect in the world. And, Jake, nice to speak to you, and thank you. It's been an honor to be on your show. Likewise.